All right, you can open your Bibles up to Genesis chapter 16. We're going to look at the whole chapter today. If you have one of our welcome table Bibles, it's on page uh, 11. Now, I, I want to just sort of set the stage here. At face value, this chapter is going to going to read like a soap opera. I don't know if any of you had ever have ever watched soap operas. We don't have to like admit to that or anything this morning, but I think all of us understand um, the dramatic nature of soap operas, right? But if we look carefully at what's going on here in this chapter, we're going to see through this relational drama between Sarai and Abram and Hagar, and we're going to see then how it points us to the grand drama. The, and I don't mean drama like, like, like this is drama, soap opera drama. I mean the drama, the story of redemption that God is, has written and is uh, unfolding literally before us, before our eyes. Uh, and, and it's this drama of redemption between God and man. Now, we need to start with a brief disclaimer before we get into this. We're going to see two things in here um, that are going to cause us to wince, okay? We're going to see both slavery and polygamy this morning. But we need to understand, we need to be really clear that the Bible never, never encourages either one of these things. It never condones these things. They always appear as evidence of a corrupted humanity and the sinful nature of the human heart. And yet, they also serve as occasions through which God, in his divine wisdom, displays his mercy and his grace to undeserving people. We're going to see both of these realities in our passage today. The sinful nature of the human heart and the divine wisdom of a gracious God. And so, uh, I know we just prayed for our prayer time, uh, but before we, we get into the word of God together here, I want to ask the Lord once again for our help, or for, for his help. See? This is why we need to pray. Father, open our eyes that we may see wonderful things in your word. Help us to understand it so that we may obey it and follow it wholeheartedly and leave here today in greater awe of Jesus Christ and in a great, with a greater desire to be conformed into his image. We pray this in his name. Amen. I'm not uh, sure about you, but I've always been fascinated with, um, with mosaics, Okay. Uh, mosaics. It, it boggles my mind how uh, an artist can take hundreds or even thousands of seemingly unrelated pictures and, and now even more like all kinds of different media, uh, uh, Rubik's cubes and different things like that, how they can take all of these things that just sort of seem individualized and random on their own and then organize them together in a way that they, they, they reveal one large, grand, awe-inducing awe, awe, awe picture. And when we look at an artist's mosaic, we, we're, we typically see the bigger picture first because we're standing back far enough to see that. And then we move in and we look at the intricacies of, of what's, what's uh, there that created that bigger picture. But when we look at our lives as a mosaic, and we think of our lives in, that, in those terms, our perspective changes. We're often so close to an individual event in our lives that we lose perspective on the bigger, grander scheme of things. And when that event that we're so fixated on is a difficult situation in particular, it becomes especially easy for us as believers to miss the fact that God is masterfully organizing the events of our lives to fit them together into his bigger, grander plan of redemption. 
Why is that? It's because if we're honest, we tend to focus on our problems instead of his promise. And the problem, though, with that is that we like to fix problems, right? But when we fail to see what God is doing in the, mix, in the, in the midst of our problems, we, we typically just make worse the thing that we're trying to fix. It's an exercise in futility for us to try to achieve by our own means what God has clearly and, 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 and sovereignly promised to provide for us by himself. And so this morning, as we get into this passage, as we look at this, this mosaic, so to speak, we're going to look at one piece of the mosaic this morning. Here's our main idea. When the immediate picture is problematic, we must focus on the bigger picture. When the immediate picture is problematic, we must focus on the bigger picture. And so in this mosaic, we're going we're to be up close together first at the problem, okay? We're going to look at uh, the things that Sarai and Abram and Hagar see, and then we'll move out to see what God himself sees. So let's begin with uh, the immediate picture here in verse 1. Abram's wife, Sarai, had not borne any children for him, but she owned an Egyptian slave named Hagar. Now, whether or not you're familiar with this story, when we read this verse, right here we ought to go, uh-oh. Right? Like this is a plot-building sentence right here. There's something coming here. Like in your mind, God promised a son to Abram. Sarai is unable to bear children, but she owned an Egyptian slave named Hagar. This is what it tells us. If we remember back from chapter 12, uh, when they went to Egypt and, and Moses... Er, Moses. That's later. Um, and Abram says, hey, hey, Sarai, tell him, tell him you're my um, sister and, and instead of my wife. We're going to deceive them so that we stay safe or whatever. And then they left and they had all these possessions, including uh, people. Uh, Sarai probably uh, acquired Hagar at that time. She's an Egyptian slave woman. Back in chapter 12, it was Abram who concocted this really, really poor uh, plan, and now it's Sarai's turn to concoct a plan, and, and it would only complicate the problems that Abram's plan already created. If you remember when we went through chapter 12 together, we talked about this. We're, like we said, it, it doesn't always have immediate consequences, but things will show up later, right? Well, this is later, and now it's just going to complicate things even more. So what's this plan? What's this plan that's running through Sarai's mind? Well, verse 2 tells us. Look at 2 and 3. Sarai said to Abram, since the Lord has prevented me from bearing children, go to my slave. Perhaps through her I can build a family. And Abram agreed to what Sarai said. So Abram's wife took Hagar, her Egyptian slave, and gave her to her husband Abram as a wife for him. This happened after Abram had lived in the land of Canaan for 10 years. Now, do you sense the animosity toward God in Sarai's words here? Did you pick that up? She says, the Lord prevented me from bearing children. Now, it seems as though she was convinced that God was keeping something good for her. Sarai has a lot in common with Eve, does she not? Now, we're going to see quite a few similarities, actually, between what takes place here and what took place back in Genesis chapter 3, and those similarities begin with the verses that we just read. Eve, if you remember from chapter 3, thought that she could obtain wisdom on her own. 
Sarai here says, perhaps I can obtain children on my own. Now, what Sarai was proposing was actually a common practice in the ancient Near Eastern culture. When a matriarch was barren, it was customary for her to give one of her female slaves to her husband so that that slave could bear children on her behalf. And then by right, the slave's children would become her children. So what Sarai was proposing was socially acceptable, but we need to understand this. It was not spiritually acceptable. It was common practice in the culture, but nowhere, nowhere has God condoned this behavior. Nowhere has God given permission for this. Abram liked the idea, though. Verse 2 says, he agreed to what Sarai said. Now, in the Hebrew, that the phrase is, he listened to the voice of his wife, of Sarai. It's the same phrase that God used when he confronted Adam back in Genesis 3.17. And to Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you, and in pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. And he goes on with more of the curse, right? Adam listened to Eve instead of listening to God. Abram listened to Sarai instead of listening to God. In verse 3 here, it says that Sarai took Hagar and gave her to her husband. Where else have we heard that language? Eve took the fruit and gave it to her husband. The similarity between the language that's used here, that's purposeful. The author is doing something here for his audience. He's, he's bringing them back into the whole picture of the, the story that's going on right now. Helping us see that what's about to take place is contrary to what God wants. It's counter. What Abram and, and Sarai have agreed to, it's counter to what God wants for them. He already laid out his intentions very clearly for marriage back in Genesis 1 and 2, 2.24. One man uniting himself to one woman for life. What Sarah and Abram have agreed to is not only going to cause them, or is only going to cause them more grief and trouble, such is the case with anything that we try to do that is counter to what God wants for us, right? Only brings us more grief. Only brings us more trouble. Now, she gave Hagar to Abram as his wife. Her status is changing right here. She goes from slave to wife, but even this so-called promotion, uh, she's still viewed as having a lower status than Sarai. Sarai is the matriarch. And that's going to cause all kinds of problems, as we'll see in the next few verses. And in fact, what takes place here has ramifications, not just for the rest of the chapter, but on through Genesis and all the way through the rest of Scripture. This is why we need to see there's a bigger story taking place here. But before we read further, it's worth noting this last sentence in verse 3. It says, this happened after Abram had, left, had lived in the land of Canaan 10 years. 10 years. That's 10 years at least that Abram has been waiting on God to fulfill his promises that he made to him back in chapter 12. Abram has been living in the promised land for a decade now, but not as the owner of it. He's been living there in a tent, in a temporary shelter as a foreigner. He's waiting on the promise that God 
made to him. Genesis 12 tells us that Abram was 75 years old when he left Haran to go to the land of Canaan. He was already an old man when God promised to give him a son. Now he's 85 years old. He's not getting any younger. And the promise still has yet to be fulfilled. Still no son, even though in chapter 15, God reassured him that the promised son would come through Abram's own own body. You remember that from last week? Abram was like, well, one of my slaves is going to be an heir, my heir. Someone who's not my son is going to be my heir. And God says, no, no, trust me. You will have an heir and he will come from your own body. But in all this time, God has yet to specify that that son would also come from Sarai's body. And so, understanding that, we can at least understand Sarai's line of thinking here, right? Even if it's wrong, even even though it's wrong, even though it's contrary to God's line of thinking, we can at least track with her her as as she's trying to figure this out, right? She knew that the promised son would come from Abram, but it seems as though she assumed that since she was still barren, that the promised son wouldn't come from her. In fact, that from the language that she used in chapter in uh, verse 2 here, it seems as though she was convinced that God didn't want the promised son to come from her. Since the Lord has prevented me from having a child. There's the animosity. She's giving up. So in her mind, she's like, well, I'm, I'm the obstacle. I'm standing in the way of the promise. So I'm going to help speed up the fulfillment of it. But when we try to speed up God's promise, we only tend to speed up our problems. Right? Look at verse 4. Abram slept with Hagar, and she became pregnant. And when she saw that she was pregnant, her mistress became contemptible to her. Then Sarai said to Abram, you are responsible for my suffering. I put my slave in your arms, and when she saw that she was pregnant, I became contemptible to her. May the Lord judge between me and you. Abram replied to Sarai, here, your slave's in your hands. Do whatever you want with her. Then Sarai mistreated her so much that she ran away from her. Hagar's status was lower than Sarai's, but she finally had something that Sarai didn't, a baby in her womb. And when she saw that she was pregnant, Hagar looked down on Sarai and treated her with contempt. Sarai became insignificant and despised in Hagar's eyes, but in Sarai's eyes, she remained noble and upright herself. Sarai thought that she was giving Abram the son that God had promised to him, but but what she got in return was this rivalry with Hagar. And so after her plan backfired, Sarai yelled at Abram and blamed him for her suffering. She even went so far as to call on the Lord to prove her innocence and Abram's guilt. May the Lord judge between you and me, she said. What did Abram do? Shrugged it off. Basically said, Hagar's not my slave. She's yours. You deal with it. Now, let's just pause right here for a moment and recognize that these are the people that God has promised 
to give blessing to? Do they deserve it? The answer is no. Is anyone in this story so far innocent? The answer is no. Not a single one of them. All three of them, Sarai, Abram, and Hagar, are all guilty of sinning against each other and against the Lord. It's ironic that Sarai would call on the Lord to judge between her and Abram because she and Abram were each blaming someone else for their own sin. Does that sound familiar? Just like Adam and Eve did in the Garden of Eden when the Lord came down and judged their actions. Eve said that the serpent made me do it. Adam said that woman that you gave me made me do it. Sarai told Abram, I put my slave in your arms. Abram told Sarai, your slave is in your hands. You do whatever you want with her. In the Hebrew there, that, fra- that last phrase is rendered, do whatever is good in your own eyes. Now, we need to understand this. Whenever that phrase shows up in the Bible, they did whatever they wanted in their own eyes, it's always a bad thing. Unless when we get to the book of Acts, they say it seemed good to us and to the Spirit. But whenever it says they did, good what was, they, they did what was good in their own eyes, it's always a bad thing. It's, it's always doing something that God in his eyes says this is not good. So Abram says, do whatever is good in your own eyes. What was the good in Sarai's eyes? to treat Hagar so poorly that Hagar ran away from her. Sarah's answer to the affliction that she felt was to channel all of that into oppression against Hagar until Sarai's problem went away. I'll just push her out. Now, up to this point, we've been up close to the mosaic. We've seen one tiny little picture of what's going on here. We've seen what Sarai and Abram and Hagar see, right? The immediate picture. And the immediate picture is just riddled with problems that they have created for themselves because they, in this moment, have failed to see the bigger picture, what God sees. So let's see what God sees. We're going to get the perspective of the Lord now, and it's different, I think, than what we might expect. Look at verse 7. The angel of the Lord found her by a spring in the wilderness, found uh, Hagar, uh, by a spring in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur. He said, Hagar, slave of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? She replied, I'm running away from my mistress, Sarai. Back in Genesis 3, after Adam and Eve sinned, they hid themselves from God, you remember? And God came looking for them in the garden. And he asked them similar questions. Where are you? What have you done? In chapter 11, we're told that the Lord came down to look over the city and the tower that the humans were building in Babylon. In both of those instances, when the Lord entered the scene, it resulted in judgment for the people. Here the angel of the Lord sought out Hagar, and when he found her, he questioned her. Now, based on what we already know and the similarities we've already seen, what should we expect here for Hagar? Judgment. 
Now, at first, it may seem like the angel of the Lord doesn't know what's going on. Even though verse 7 says that he found Hagar, he already knew where she was. And even though he asked her where she came from and where she was going, he already knew the answer to those questions, just like the Lord already knew where Adam and Eve were in the garden, and he already knew the answer to the questions that he asked them there, just like the Lord already knew what the people were up to before he came down to Babylon to inspect the city and the tower that they were building. The angel of the Lord called Hagar by name, identified her as Sarai's slave. He knew who she was and where she had come from. And he found her by a wellspring, a spring with a well in it, in the wilderness on the way to Shur. Shur is near the border of Egypt where Hagar is from. Where's she going? She's going home. The angel of the Lord knows this. Because when we run away from our problems, we, we, we run toward what we know, right? We tend to look for refuge in what's familiar. And we, like Hagar, we tend to flee from our problems. But right here is evidence that we cannot flee from the Lord. Imagine how Hagar must have felt when the God of her oppressive master tracked her down and caught her before she could reach the safety of her homeland. Now, she doesn't have all the knowledge about God that we do. We, we have all of this knowledge right here. God has revealed himself to us fully in his word. We know the bigger picture. This is the mosaic right here. All she has in reference to who he is is whatever she has learned tied to her relationship with Sarai. So... If Sarai was oppressive, how do you think in this moment that Hagar viewed Sarai's God when he came and spoke to her? I would be terrified. Back in chapter 12, when God made his promises to Abram, he said, I will curse anyone who treats you with contempt. The exact same phrase in the Hebrew that was described as, as what Hagar did to Sarai. Treated her with contempt. We should expect God to bring curses on Hagar for what she's done here. And he would be right to do so. Why? We sang it. Holy, holy, Lord Almighty. But that's not what happens. Look at verse 9. The angel of the Lord said to her, Go back to your mistress and submit to her authority. The angel of the Lord said to her, I will greatly multiply your offspring, and they will be too many to count. The angel of the Lord said to her, you have conceived and will have a son, and you will name him Ishmael, for the Lord has heard your cry of affliction. Whether or not this, this phrase, the angel of the Lord, actually refers to the Lord himself here is debated among some scholars. There are places in Scripture where that phrase is referring to God himself. There's other places in Scripture where that's referring to one of his messengers, when we look at verse 13 in a minute, it, it, it will seem to indicate that the Lord himself is the one that's speaking here. But that's not entirely clear from what we have here in the text to look at. What is not debated, though, what is entirely clear is whether this is the Lord himself or the angel speaking on his behalf, what this, the angel says here is the word of the Lord. Three times in these three verses, we get this phrase, the angel of the Lord said to her. 
The angel of the Lord said to her. The angel of the Lord said to her. This is to emphasize this fact that what he is saying in this moment, God is saying in this moment. So what did God say? Did he curse her like we expect him to? No. What did he do and said? He promised her a blessing. He promised her a, a blessing, but, he, but first he told her to go back to Sarai and to submit to her authority. Now, in no way was God condoning slavery here. The reason that God told Hagar to go back and to submit to Sarai's authority was not because she owned Hagar. It was because God's promised blessing was tied to Abram's household. The language that's used in chapter 12, he tells Abram, I will bless those who bless you. I will curse those who, anyone who treats you with contempt, and all the peoples of the earth will be blessed through you. God's promise that he gave to Eve in Genesis 3.15, that he, told, that he gave to us and, and warned the serpent about him, sending a promised son, a serpent crusher. Through Abram, God is narrowing that down to a family and a place now. There's a who and a where that we can associate with this promise. And it's through Abram. If Hagar abandoned the household of Abram, she would abandon the blessing that came through him. The blessing that God promised to Hagar was to greatly multiply her offspring so that they would be too many to count, he says. It's the same blessing he promised to Abram. And as a way of reassuring Hagar of that promise, he instructed her to name her son Ishmael. Ishmael means God hears. Isn't that amazing? Is the Lord not deliberate here? Every time she would call out her son's name, you know what she would remember? God hears. God hears. It would be a reminder that the Lord had heard her cry of affliction. Isn't it an ironic twist to Sarai's complaint at the beginning of the chapter that God had ignored her cry of affliction and was preventing her from bearing children? The Hebrew word for heard here in verse 11 is the same word that's translated agreed in verse 2. Abram listened to Sarai. He agreed with her, and it only added to her affliction. The Lord listened. He heard Hagar, and he brought comfort to her affliction. But in the blessing, in the promise, the blessing that he gave to her, it was a mixed one. Look at verse 12. This man will be like a wild donkey, referring to Ishmael. His hand will be against everyone, and everyone's hand will be against him. He will settle near all of his relatives. Ishmael would inherit the contentious spirit of his mother. And although he wouldn't be subject to slavery as she was, his life would be marked by conflict with others. The last phrase in verse 12 says, he will settle near all his relatives. Notice it says near and not with. There are several other English translations of the Bible that offer a helpful rendering here. They say he will live in hostility with his brothers, with all of his brothers. What did God tell the serpent back in Genesis 3? I will put hostility between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. The angel of the Lord said that Ishmael would be like a wild donkey. That Hebrew word for donkey sounds 
like uh, similar to the word Paran, which is the wilderness where he will settle later. We'll see that later in Genesis. It's outside of the promised land. It's wilderness. As we read this, we're getting clues here that there's a bigger picture. We're getting clues that Ishmael is not the son that God had promised to give to Abram, but that wasn't clear to Hagar yet. She's still focused on the immediate picture. But that doesn't negate the fact that the angel of the Lord still promised her blessing if she returned to Abram's household. And even though the angel of the Lord didn't reveal the bigger picture to her in that moment, he did reveal that God saw her pain, that God heard her cries, and God intervened with his grace. He cared enough to intervene. And Hagar marveled at that. Look at verse 13. She named the Lord who spoke to her, you are el Roi, For she said, in this place, have I actually seen the one who sees me? That is why the well is called Be'er Lahai Roi. It is between Kadesh and Bered. So Hagar gave birth to Abram's son, and Abram named his son, whom Hagar bore, Ishmael. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to him. We already mentioned, Hagar didn't know the Lord's name. So in that moment, she gave him one that symbolized their encounter. El Roi means God who sees me. Verse 7 says that the angel of the Lord found her by a spring in the wilderness. That spring had a well, and that well was named Be'er Lahai Roi, which means the well of the living one who sees me. Hagar's perspective was changed here. She didn't fully know the bigger picture, but the Lord showed her here in this moment that there was more to her situation than what she saw. Verse 15 makes it clear that Hagar obeyed the Lord's instructions and went back to Abram's household. Why? Because Abram was there to name his son when she gave birth to him. The text doesn't tell us how Abram knew to name him Ishmael, but based on the instructions that Hagar received in verse 11, it seems likely that she relayed the details of this encounter with the angel of the Lord to Abram and his household and passed on the naming instructions to him as well. Verse 15 refers to Ishmael twice as Abram's son rather than Hagar's, even though she gave birth to him. When Abram named his son, Abram was publicly recognizing Ishmael as his own legitimate heir, and the language in these last couple verses reflects that. This is a son of Abraham, of Abram. The story ends by mentioning Abram's age once again. He's 86 years old when Ishmael was born, which means he had now lived in the land of Canaan for 11 years as a foreigner. He still hadn't seen the fulfillment of God's promise to give him the land, but, but here in his mind, it seems as though he believed that God had, full, had, had finally fulfilled his promise to give him a son. Now we're standing back right? We're seeing the bigger picture. We've seen the clues. We know Ishmael's not it, and we're going to find out in chapter 17 next week. God's going to make that clear to Abram too, but right now, Abram's up here. God had a plan that he was patiently and graciously carrying out. When Sarai grew impatient with God's pace, you ever been there? Talked about that last week, right? 
She looked at her own resources. You ever do that? She said, what do I have? What can I do? And with those resources, she concocted a plan of her own. And Abram liked the expedience of Sarai's plan better than waiting for God to do what he promised. They thought that they were helping God fulfill his promise. And by the end of the story, it seemed as though their plan had worked. Even though it led to some relational strife that resulted in Hagar running away, God tracked her down, brought her back, and Abram ended up with a son. Like, well, it worked, right? but they weren't focused on the bigger picture. They were focused on the immediate one in front of them. They were focused on the problem instead of the promise, but they thought they thought that they were focused on the promise. They thought that they were helping, that they were bringing it to fulfillment, but instead they only confirmed their need for God himself to fulfill the promise by himself. Because through the son that God had promised Abram would come more sons of the promise. And through those sons, eventually down the line would come a true son of the promise who's called the son of Abraham, son of David, son of man, son of God, Jesus Christ. And this true promised son would submit himself to the authority of oppressive leaders who were waiting on God's promise. They were still waiting for the promised Messiah, but they couldn't see the promise being fulfilled as he was standing there right in front of them. And those leaders who were Abram's sons by, by birth, his descendants by birth, they put to death Abram's true son by nailing him to a cross. And this was all part of God's bigger and grander plan of redemption because even though they put Jesus to death, Jesus went to the cross willingly to die so that he could pay the penalty for rebellious sinners, people who, who rely on themselves and go their own way and build them into a new family of God's children through faith in Jesus Christ. And after Jesus was crucified, he rose from the grave on the third day so that all who believe in him, all who no longer rely on themselves, but rely on Christ that they can also truly live. It's a beautiful picture, isn't it? But there's more. There's a day yet to come when the risen Son of God will return in all his glory to judge the living and the dead and to separate those who chose their own plan from those who trusted in God's plan. Those who rejected God and relied on themselves will suffer an eternity of affliction under the righteous wrath of a holy God. But those who denied themselves and relied on Christ, what would they find? Relief from every last one of our afflictions. Forever. This, this is the grand mosaic of redemption right here. God created mankind to be in perfect relationship with him, to know him, to love him forever, and to reflect his character and his nature to the rest of creation. But mankind had a different plan. Mankind sought to go a different way when they thought that God was keeping something good from them, and they sinned against their creator, breaking their relationship with him and with one another, and bringing death and decay and corruption into the world and into the hearts of all people. 
But before all of that took place, the God who knows all, sees all, is sovereign over all, had already begun his plan. The Bible tells us that before the foundation of the world, God purposed to send his one and only son into the world to live a perfect life of obedience to him, to, to follow God's plan where we failed, and then to die a sacrificial death on the cross to pay for the sins, to pay for the, the, the penalty of our failure, and to rise from the grave in order to rescue and to redeem rebellious sinners and reconcile us back to God as his adopted sons and daughters. And soon, Jesus will return from heaven to defeat all of his enemies once and for all and gather all of God's adopted children into his eternal kingdom in a new heaven and a new earth. It's beautiful. This is the bigger picture that we must never lose sight of. Every single moment of our lives fits into this grand mosaic somehow. Every single moment. Not one of them goes astray. Not one of them is outside of this realm. Perhaps you've rejected God's plan and you've been relying on yourself up until this point. Don't miss the bigger picture here that the Lord has shown you today. Don't miss the, the grace. See the grace that he gave to Sarai and Abram to continue the promise to them even though they re rejected him in this moment and tried to do it themselves. See the grace that he gave to Hagar even though she ran away. See the grace that he gives to each of us even though we fail him over and over. There's real life examples in this room. I'll be the first to share. Let's talk afterwards. See the grace that this God is offering to you right now to turn to him and be forgiven. Well, I've done too much. How could he ever forgive me? He sees, he hears, and he intervenes. He's a God who cares. Let today be the day that you no longer rely on yourself and begin to rely on Jesus Christ. Maybe your trust is already in Christ, but you've been trying to do things on your own lately. Maybe you've grown impatient with God's pace and you looked at your own resources and you've concocted a plan of your own like Sarai did to try to advance a little further in the plan. Or maybe you're like Abram and you're going along with somebody else's plan because it looks good, sounds good. Maybe you benefit from it. Maybe you've convinced yourself that you're helping God move things along when in reality you're deviating from his plan. We've all chosen convenience over patience multiple times in our life. That's why we need to keep the bigger picture in view because when we focus on the immediate problems of our lives, what do we do? We tend to try to find temporary fixes for them, right? And we forget that God has already provided a permanent solution. His promised son Listen, we're on this side of that promise. We see it. We can see it fulfilled in here.
when our eyes are fixed on Jesus, not only will we be more inclined to keep our confidence and dependence rooted, anchored in him and not in ourselves, but here's the key. When we fail, and we will, we will also be quicker to run back to God instead of toward what's familiar that only leaves us in disarray. We'll be quicker to run back to God instead of running away from him when we fail because we'll remember that Jesus, Jesus, the promised son, has already purchased our redemption. He's already paid for our sin in full, all of it, past, present, and future. So how do we keep our eyes fixed on him? How do we stay focused on the bigger picture? By staring intently at the grace-filled mosaic of God's word. Over and over and over. We do it by looking at each individual story like we've done today and seeing how it fits into the bigger, grander story of redemption and ultimately leads us to the foot of the cross, to the empty tomb, to the, to the throne of our risen Savior, Jesus. The more we practice that together, and we need to do it together, the more we'll be able to help each other see how the pain and the blessings, those things that we think are good, maybe aren't good, even if they are good, how those things and the problems that we experience, how they, uh, they, they, they fit into this grand story of redemption and lead us to greater confidence in Christ and greater dependence upon him. And the beauty of God's plan is that our confidence, as we grow in confidence in Christ, as we grow in dependence upon him by the power of his spirit who now lives in us and by uh, the, the, the truth of his word that he's given to us, guess what we get to do? We get to participate in the fulfillment of the promise. The rest of it to come. Every time, every time we share the gospel, Every time we give people this big picture view, this mosaic of grace, and they come to believe in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of their sins and their salvation and eternal life, guess what happens? God reveals another son or daughter. And he adds them to his kingdom of grace. What could we do on our own that would further a plan better than that? What could we do on our own that would result in something greater? Nothing. God is masterfully organizing the events of our lives to fit them together into his bigger, grander plan of redemption. When the immediate picture is problematic, we have to, we must encourage one another to focus on the bigger picture. When we fail to see what God is doing in the midst of our problems, we typically just make worse what we try to fix on our own. It's an exercise in futility for us to try to achieve by our own means what God has clearly promised to provide for us by himself. And what God has clearly promised to us, he's already given to us. Jesus, his beloved son. So let's make it a habit then of, of, of helping each other. This is, this is our, where's our thing? The, 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 the mission statement. This is what we're doing to help each other see the realities, how the realities of the gospel connect to the realities of our lives. You know what that is? It's helping us go from the little picture to the big picture. 
and see the beautiful mosaic of grace. Can we do that together? Let's do that together. Let's resolve by his grace to trust God's pace as we wait and watch the rest of his plan unfold. Confident. Listen, walking out of here even today, knowing that the rest of this day and every day from here until Christ returns is another picture in that mosaic, revealing God's beautiful, beautiful grace. Amen?